welcome to this meeting, a much needed presentation at this time as the crisis uh, in our country and globally is deepening, economic crisis, the inflation crisis, the cost of living crisis, combined with uh, the most rampant drive to war, the escalation of wars all over the globe um, and increasing tensions between uh, the imperialist bloc and anybody they see as an obstruction to their domination of the globe um, and the way these crises are interacting with one another, it's really important for us to get back to basics uh, and understand uh, exactly where we are and what it is we're trying to do. If we don't understand the nature of the forces we're dealing with, we can't understand what our strategy and tactics need to be. If we don't understand the root causes of the problems we're looking at, we can't work out the ultimate solutions to them. And what we don't want to be in the business of is building mass movements to demand quick fixes that don't tackle the root causes of the problem and leave us in a situation where ultimately in a year or two years or ten years we or our children are having the same fight over and over again because we haven't actually dealt with the, the root cause of all of our problems. So today, I'm not going to talk about why these pamphlets are important, these works of Lenin, foundational texts of organising the fight against imperialism, organising party work, getting working class organisation going, uh, because that's what our speakers are going to talk about and they're going to do a much better job than I would uh, in introducing them. Um, but suffice it to say that when we are facing a crisis as we are, when the working class is so disorganised and lacking in theoretical clarity, what we need is to come back to basic principles and ask ourselves, from the experience of the revolutionary movement, how do we understand the tasks that face us and how do we organise ourselves so that the working class can win, can remove the conditions that are creating all this misery and go forward into a better life. Uh, so that's fundamentally why we do what we do and why we're looking at these particular pamphlets today, these works of Lenin, which uh, set out some very important principles of how one organises the struggle uh, in these type of conditions. Um, before we ask our first speaker, Comodella, to speak uh, on Lenin's pamphlet, uh, What is to be Done?, I just want to say a few words about the passing of our comrade of Tajo, uh, because today is his funeral, we're very sorry many of us who are here today would have liked to have been at the funeral. Uh, having already committed to this meeting, uh, we felt that it was the right thing, given the conditions that we're in, that I've just outlined, to go ahead with the meeting. Um, we're very sorry not to be at the funeral because of Tar Joel was one of us. Not only he was a member of our party, but he was a lifelong fighter against racism, against imperialism, for socialism. He was someone all his life who never lost sight of um, the working class's future, its bright future in socialism. Uh, from the earliest days of his political activity, um, right through to the end of his life, he always had faith in the working class uh, and its ability to win the, win the struggle uh, and come through and build socialism. So um, in memory of Avtar, I'd like us please to give a minute's silence before we proceed with the rest of the meeting. Okay, Dad.
Thank you, comrades. So I will now pass the microphone to Comrade Ella and, <coughs> and ask her to introduce uh, her topic, uh, which is Lenin's pamphlet, What is to be done? Thanks, Ella. Thank you. Right, well, the main thrust of Lenin's pamphlet, What is to be done, is to define in broad terms how revolutionaries should do their work if they want to succeed in mobilizing the masses of the people for proletarian revolution. Most of the pamphlet is devoted to lambasting the variety of opportunism he called economism and contrasting the type of work that revolutionaries should be doing as opposed to what this type of opportunist considered appropriate. He then goes on to explain uh, how important a national newspaper is, both for imparting information, uh, raising class consciousness among the workers, and helping to forge a centralised revolutionary organisation that would give maximum impact to the revolutionary prop propaganda uh, by ensuring its distribution on a national level and not uh, piecemeal in various local levels. Uh, revolutions are made by the oppressed masses, not by leadership organisations isolated from the people. Obviously, the masses to such a huge extent outnumber the exploiters that uh, the exploiters would stand no chance at all if the masses turned on them. So what prevents the working class from doing so? Fundamentally, it's a lack of understanding of what needs to be done and of the fact that together they have the means to do it. The first job that must be tackled is disseminating the necessary understanding, while at the same time building up a strong and efficient mechanism for organising the revolution when the masses are ready, and that organisation is the party. Now, this isn't an easy job at all. It requires all party cadres to acquire high levels of political understanding themselves in order to be able to spread that understanding as widely as possible to others. Indeed, it's in the course of working to spread the understanding to others that one's able to identify gaps in one's own understanding, uh, which we strive to close so that we're in future able to answer workers' questions and respond correctly to their doubts. In pre-revolutionary Russia, it would be hard to convince workers uh, because of the prevalence of religious belief that persuaded people that they must accept their fate. Now, religion is not such a problem for us, but bourgeois ideology is blasted through to workers via radio, television, which Lenin didn't have to contend with, as well as through the education system and through the overwhelming weight of opportunism operating in the working class movement, principally, but not exclusively, through the Labour Party. In Lenin's day, the work of revolutionaries was hampered by the overtly repressive nature of the state, which was forever intervening to put the revolutionaries out of action, whether by imprisonment or just murdering them. Uh, for the moment, this isn't a major problem in this country, but just as much damage is done by the widespread illusions in bourgeois parliamentarism and bourgeois elections, which lead people to believe that oh, if only they could get an honest person elected to parliament or even a local council, 
oh, he or she would be in a position to put everything right, or at least uh, implement meaningful reforms. However, uh, regardless of the different nature of the obstacles in the way of effective revolutionary work, the basic task of revolutionaries is the same, and that is to diffuse revolutionary ideology among the working class and other oppressed masses. Uh, the first point to be noted is that it's necessary to take re revolutionary ideology to the working class because the working class is not able to generate that understanding spontaneously. And uh, I, if I can quote from Lenin here, he has said, we have said that there could not have been social democratic consciousness. Ah, I should mention that when Lenin's talking about social democratic, he means communist. So if it's a quote from Lenin and he says so social democratic, he means communist because in those days the social democrats hadn't yet disgraced themselves um, and made it necessary to change the name of the party from social democratic party to the communist party. But I'll, I'll keep talking about social democrat uh, in quotes of Lenin rather than try to change it for you. So we've said that they could not have been um, social democratic consciousness among the workers. It would have to be brought to them from without. The history of all countries shows that the working class, exclusively by its own effort, is able to develop only trade union consciousness, i.e. the conviction that it's necessary to combine in unions, fight the employers, and strive to compel the government to pass necessary labour legislation, etc. The theory of socialism, however, grew out of the philosophic, historic, historical and economic theories elaborated by educated representatives of the propertied classes, by intellectuals. By their social status, the founders of modern scientific socialism, Marx and Engels, themselves belong to the bourgeois intelligentsia. In the very same way in Russia, the theoretical doctrine of social democracy arose altogether independently of the spontaneous growth of the working class movement. It arose as a natural and inevitable outcome of the development of thought among the revolutionary socialist intelligentsia." Unquote. So the Marxist understanding of the movement of history, the nature of capitalism, the nature of the socialism that must replace it, etc., arise from deep scientific understanding that can no more be generated spontaneously by the masses uh, than physics or chemistry. The masses are, of course, perfectly capable of understanding these things, should they need to, and put their mind to it. But it's necessary for a teacher to bring that knowledge to them. The revolutionary worker goes among the masses precisely at those times when the masses begin to understand spontaneously that the system is not working for them and they're therefore looking for solutions. Uh, however, not all workers reach that spontaneous understanding at the same time. There'll be some advanced workers who start looking for solutions much sooner than others. And it's our endeavour to attract these advanced workers to our Communist Party, to train them as revolutionaries in as great a number as possible so that when, as a result of deteriorating living standards, and or involvement in unjust wars, uh, broader sections of the working class begin to look for solutions, we have a large and well-trained enough organisation to be able to meet their needs, both for knowledge and for revolutionary organisation. The biggest obstacle facing us is the fact that 
social democratic prejudice, that's Labour Party <laughs> class collaborationist in this context uh, prejudice, uh, is deeply embedded in the working class movement. Since as an imperialist country, with the wealth they've hijacked from oppressed countries, the ruling class has been able judiciously to buy social peace by providing a middle-class standard of life to working-class leaders and offering certain benefits to the broad masses of the people, such as free health care, education, pensions, dole. These aren't given generously, but sufficiently to head off the level of popular discontent that would trigger riots. At the same time, workers' unions, heavily linked to the Labour Party, have over the years often been able successfully to fight for slightly better pay or working conditions, and that the ruling class has only conceded, albeit reluctantly, because its imperialist interests enable it to do so without bankrupting itself. Uh, although the illusions in social democracy are rapidly fading as the Labour Party remoulds itself more and more in the image of the Tories in order to reassure the ruling class that capitalism is safe in their hands, uh, nevertheless, the illusions in parliamentarism still persist. The unions, which had become very passive at the behest of their Labour Party bosses, are at last becoming more active in organising working class resistance in the face of the abrupt decline in living standards that has hit the working masses because of the capitalist economic crisis aggravated by the costs of war. And the situation is going to get much worse. It's to be expected in the circumstances that workers who'd previously seen no point in joining the union, uh, which has led in the past to massive declines in membership, they will now join and take part in the resistance taking place. In so doing, these workers become advanced workers, workers actively looking for a solution to the problems faced by their class. In other words, the pool of people who can be expected to be receptive to communist ideas is starting to increase. It's up to us to bring the understanding that trade unionism just isn't enough and to try to recruit them to become revolutionaries. We will be strenuously opposed in this endeavour by most of the trade union leadership, which will devote itself to keep its movement within the bounds of capitalism. So in response to this situation, there are two main views as to how revolutionaries should proceed. The opportunist view is that all that revolutionaries have to do is to join the working class struggles and jolly them along, perhaps producing encouraging leaflets, joining picket lines and perhaps arranging sandwiches for strike, striking workers. Become their friends. Get them to trust you. Oh, don't present them with revolutionary ideas because that might put them off. Uh, there'll be time enough for that um, once, you, once you've gained their trust. Uh, this is a message very much acceptable to the class collaborationist trade union bosses. Lenin characterised this view as the worship of spontaneity. And he was moved to point out that, quotes again, all worship of the spontaneity of the working class movement, all belittling of the conscious element of the role of social democracy means quite independently of whether he who belittles that role desired it or not, a strengthening of the influence of bourgeois ideology upon workers. 
all those who talk about overrating the importance of ideology, about exaggerating the role of the conscious element, etc., imagine that the Labour Party, pure and simple, can elaborate and will elaborate an independent ideology for itself. But this is a profound mistake, unquote. The revolutionary view is that you join picket lines primarily to introduce revolutionary politics to the people who need them. It's not so much you these people need as the ideology you bring with you. The last thing you should do is to try to hide it or postpone talking about it until some indefinite future date. What you are bringing to the picket line or any other gathering of workers looking for solutions is, of course, theory. And as Lenin never tired of saying, without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. It's of necessity theory because it's not present practice. The present practice can't produce good results. Therefore, a theory needs to be introduced as to how the present practice needs to be changed. You know, one needs to know nothing about how a car works as long as one can drive it. I mean, that was me all my life. <laughs> but what happens when it breaks down? This is when a theory is necessary on what should be done to repair it. And of course, only a scientific theory from someone who is familiar with how a car works will be of any use. In the same way, in our broken down capitalist society, theory is needed to find the way out. But not any theory put forward by opinionated ignoramus, but a scientific theory based on deep knowledge of the laws of development of human society as developed by Marx and his followers. It therefore behoves all members of a revolutionary party to make every effort to master scientific socialist theory. This is a pretty tall order. It means learning philosophy, economics, world history, sociology, as well as politics, and, and applying one's learning to the changing realities of the world we live in and, and the class struggle, while all the time striving to pass on one's understanding to others. This demands redoubled efforts in every field of struggle and agitation. In particular, it'll be the duty of the leaders to gain an ever clearer insight into all theoretical questions to free themselves more and more from the influence of traditional phrases. Uh, oh, sorry, this is a quote from Engels, I should have said, I didn't. So it, it, in order to pass on one's understanding to others, Engels says, this demands redouble efforts in every field of struggle and agitation. In particular, it'll be the duty of the leaders to, to gain an ever clearer insight into all theoretical questions, to free themselves more and more from the influence of traditional phrases inherited from the old world outlook, and constantly to keep in mind that socialism, since it's become a science, demands that it be pursued as a science, i.e. that it be studied. The task will be to spread with increased zeal among the masses of the workers the ever more clarified understanding thus acquired, to knit together ever more firmly the organisation, both of the party and of the trade unions. And that was Engels' peasant war in Germany. However, the opportunists who think only practical work such as cheerleading striking workers or electioneering in bourgeois elections has any value regard work on questions of theory as not counting as work at all. There are people who, in Lenin's words, 
cannot pronounce the word theoretician without a sneer, who described their genuflections to common lack of training and backwardness as mm, a sense for the realities of life, and thereby reveal in practice a failure to understand our most imperative practical task. And that was the words of Lenin. Well, we've all met people like that, haven't we? <laughs> While it's of course true that theoretical work that's not combined with practical work of spreading understanding to the widest possible extent is useless, it's also the case that practical work devoid of revolutionary content is just as useless. As a well-known psychologist, Kurt Lewin, once said, there's nothing so practical as a good theory. <laughs> anyway, a favorite trick of the opportunists who seek to suppress the expression of the revolutionary Marxist ideology is to claim that their literature that limits itself to applauding the spontaneous resistance of the masses amounts to agitation, while what the revolutionaries are seeking to do is all propaganda, which of course, consistently goes beyond the interests of what ordinary workers are interested in. Uh, Lenin was at pains to point out that this opportunist <coughs> definition of agitation and propaganda, respectively, is totally false. The propagandist, he says, dealing with, say, the question of unemployment, must explain the capitalistic nature of crises, the cause of their inevitability in modern society, the necessity for the transformation of this society into a socialist society, etc. In a word, he must present many ideas, so many indeed that they'll be understood as an integral whole only by a comparatively few persons. The agitator, however, speaking on the same subject, will take as an illustration a fact that's most glaring and most widely known to his audience, say, the death of an unemployed worker's family from starvation, the growing impoverishment, etc., and utilising this fact known to all will direct his efforts to present a single idea to the masses, e.g. the senselessness of the contradiction between the increase of wealth and the increase of poverty. He will strive to rouse discontent and indignation among the masses against this crying injustice, leaving a more complete explanation of this contradiction to the propagandist. Consequently, says Lenin, the propagandist operates chiefly by means of the printed word, the agitator by means of the spoken word. So in contrast to this, uh, the economists against whom Lenin was writing in What's to be Done opposed the tasks of political propaganda and political ag agitation because, quotes, these force into the background the task of presenting to the government concrete demands for legislative and administrative measures that promise certain palpable results, i.e. demands for social reforms, unquote. And Lenin would certainly never have objected to a propagandist leaflet being distributed among his agitator's audience that explained the reasons for the senseless contradiction between the increase of wealth and the increase of poverty in more detail. So much of the reluctance to talk theory to the masses, even the advanced workers, stems from an elitist belief that only a person who's received a high level of education is capable of understanding theory, and that relatively uneducated workers are too thick to understand such things. Uh, this, of course, is total nonsense. Less educated people can understand the most complex ideas if they feel that they need to and if they put their mind to it. What is true 
is that highly educated workers generally have more time and skills at their disposal that enable them to access advanced theory more easily. But this is all the more reason why they should put their skills to work to impart their understanding to those who do not have these advantages, in particular the advanced workers. And they should not be surprised to find when they do so that ordinary workers are predisposed by their life experience to accept these theories far more easily than those who've been more privileged. Lenin, in making this point, suggested that workers might address communists in the following terms. And he's imagining a worker speaking to a communist. He says, the economic struggle of the workers against the employers and the government, about which you make such a fuss as if you discovered a new America, is being waged in all parts of Russia, even the most remote, by the workers themselves who've heard about strikes, but who've heard almost nothing about socialism. The activity you want to stimulate among us workers by advancing concrete demands that promise palpable results, we're already displaying. And in our everyday limited trade union work, we put forward these concrete demands very often without any assistance whatever from the intellectuals. But such activity is not enough for us. We're not children to be fed on the thin gruel of economic politics alone. We want to know everything that others know. We want to learn the details of all aspects of political life and to take part actively in every single political event. In order that we may do this, the intellectuals must talk to us less of what we already know and tell us more about what we do not yet know and what we can never learn from our factory and economic experience namely political knowledge. You intellectuals can acquire this knowledge and it's your duty to bring it to us in a hundred and a thousandfold greater measure than you've done up to now. And you must bring it to us not only in the form of discussions, pamphlets and articles, uh, which very often, pardon our frankness, are rather dull, but precisely in the form of vivid exposures of what our government and gov uh, governing classes are doing at this very moment in all spheres of life." Unquote. So another tendency of those who worship spontaneity is a desire to shun all issues that don't touch on the workers' present situations. A war in a foreign country? Boring. Even a strike in a different part of the country? Boring. Workers are only interested in what's local to them. Again, a profound mistake in Lenin's view. And he says social democracy, in the old-fashioned sense, leads the struggle of the working class not only for better terms for the sale of labour power, but for the abolition of the social system that compels the propertyless to sell themselves to the rich. <laughs> he goes on, social democracy rep represents the working class not in its relation to a given group of employers alone, but in its relation to all classes of modern society and to the state as an organized political force. Hence it follows that not only must social democrats not confine themselves exclusively to economic struggle, but they must not allow the organization of economic exposures to become the predominant part of their activities. We must take up actively the political education of the working class and the development of its political consciousness." Unquote. And another quote though, let us take the type of social democratic social study circle that's become most widespread in the past few years, that's in Russia, and examine its work. 
It has contacts with the workers and rests content with it, issuing leaflets in which abuses in the factories, the government's partiality towards the capitalists and the tyranny of the police are strongly condemned. At workers' meetings, the discussions never or rarely ever go beyond the limits of these subjects. Extremely rare are the lectures and discussions held on the history of the revolutionary movement, on questions of the government's home and foreign policy, on questions of the economic evolution of Russia and of Europe, on the position of the various classes in modern society, etc. As to systematically acquiring and extending contact with other classes of society, no one even dreams of that. In fact, the ideal leader, as the majority of the members of such circles picture him, is something far more in the nature of a trade union secretary than a socialist political leader. For the secretary of any, say, English trade union always helps the workers to carry on the economic struggle. He helps them to expose factory abusers, explains the injustice of the laws and of measures that hamper the freedom to strike and to picket, i.e. to warn all and sundry that a strike is proceeding at a certain factory. He explains the partiality of arbitration court judges who belong to the bourgeois classes, etc., in a word, every trade union secretary conducts and helps to conduct the economic struggle against employers and the government. It can't be too strongly maintained that this is still not social democracy, that the social democrats' ideal should not be the trade union secretary, but the tribune of the people, who's able to react to every manifestation of tyranny and oppression, no matter where it appears, no matter what stratum of class of the people it affects, who is able to generalise all these manifestations and produce a single picture of police violence and capitalist exploitation, who is able to take advantage of every event, however small, in order to set forth before all his socialist convictions and his democratic demands in order to clarify for all and everyone the world historic significance of the struggle for the emancipation of the proletariat. I haven't finished it. <laughs> there are, yeah, he was good. There are revolutionaries, in quotes, who imagine that it's better in Britain today not to go banging on about the war in Ukraine and the imperialist preparations for an all-out war against Russia and China. Surely, if people think these things don't affect them, it's our job to demonstrate to them that they do and to get them thinking about what can be done to prevent the imperialists from launching such a war, if and when it should happen. The war in Ukraine has direct relevance for the cost of living crisis, which itself affects not only people in work, but all members of the working class. How is it possible to want to minimise the question of war in our agitation among the masses? Equally, Lenin emphasises that it's by no means only in industrial struggles that advanced workers must be found, can be found. They're also to be found in broad organisations founded to promote progressive causes, you know, and examples in this country must, might be Stop the War and Palestine Solidarity Campaign. These organisations, we know from practice, tend to be dominated by social, democratic, social democrats in the modern sense, who try to ensure that the voice of revolutionary socialism is stifled within their organisation, on its platforms and in its publications. But nevertheless, every effort should be made to address their followers in whatever ways may be open to us. Another venue has been the Workers' Party of Britain, 
that attracted those people whose illusions in social democracy and in some cases parliamentarism had been shattered by the downfall of Jeremy Corbyn. Here we entered into an alliance with a progressive non-communist, George Galloway, uh, who sought to organise such people to create a party that would give voice to the interests of the working class now that it was clear the Labour Party would certainly never do it. Was it wrong? Was it opportunist for us to form an alliance? And Lenin's answer would certainly have been, not at all. Um, on the contrary, the representatives of the latter trend, the, and he's talking about the legal Marxists, i.e. non-revolutionary Marxists, mm -hmm. are natural and desirable allies of social democracy in, in, in the old sense, <laughs> as its democratic tasks brought to the fore by the prevailing situation in Russia are concerned. But an essential condition for such an alliance must be the full opportunity to for socialists to reveal to the working class that its interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the bourgeoisie, unquote. Lenin warned that nevertheless, such alliances will not necessarily last forever, as the non-revolutionary elements seek to suppress the expression of revolutionary Marxist ideology, uh, very often in the name of Marx. And he says, this is Lenin, however, the burst burns Bernsteinian and critical trend to which the majority of the legal Marxists turned deprived the socialists of this opportunity and demoralized the socialist consciousness by vulgarizing Marxism, by advocating the theory of blunting social contradictions, by declaring the idea of the social revolution and of the dictatorship of the proletariat to be absurd, by reducing the working class movement and the class struggle to narrow trade unionism and to a realistic struggle for petty gradual reforms, this was synonymous with bourgeois democracy's denial of socialism's right to independence and consequently of its right to existence. In practice, it meant striving to convert the nascent working class movement into an appendage of the liberals. Naturally, under such circumstances, the rupture was necessary." Unquote. And our own experience uh, would appear to be following a similar trajectory. Lenin also dealt with the question of whether we should self-censor for the sake of unity. His answer was certainly not. <laughs> he says, we're marching in a compact group along a precipitous and difficult path, firmly holding each other by the hand. We're surrounded on all sides by enemies and we have to advance almost constantly under fire. We have combined by a freely adopted decision for the purpose of fighting the enemy and not of retreating into the neighboring marsh, the inhabitants of which, from the very outset, have reproached us with having separated ourselves into an exclusive group and with having uh, chosen the path of struggle instead of the path of conciliation. And now, some among us begin to cry out, oh, let's go into the marsh. And when we begin to shame them, they report, oh, what backward people you are. Are you not ashamed to deny us the liberty to invite you to take a better road? Oh, yes, gentlemen, you are free not only to invite us, but, but to go yourselves wherever you will, even into the marsh. In fact, we think the marsh is your proper place. <laughs> and we are prepared to render you every assistance to get there. Only let go of our hands. Don't clutch at us and don't besmirch the grand word freedom, for we too are free to go where we please, free to fight, 
not only against the marsh, but against those who are turning towards the marsh. In fact, it's our revolutionary duty to do so. So the overwhelming majority in our party who have refused to be dragged into the marsh of opportunism have been roundly condemned as destroying the party as a result of their dyed-in-the-wool antiquated ideas, just as Lenin himself was slandered by opportunists in his day. Dogmatism, doctrinairism, ossification of the party, the inevitable retribution that follows the violent straight-lacing of thought. These are the enemies against the whom the opportunists like to claim they're fighting. Uh, it would seem our party's in good company. Uh, there are a million exposures to be made about the inequities that the capitalist system inflicts on the working class, and all of them need to be exploited for the purpose of raising the class consciousness of the workers to the point that they not only understand that capitalism must go, but in addition are prepared to do what it takes to force it out. Uh, one of the best vehicles for such exposures is the party newspaper, which needs to be made available all over the country. Lenin stressed the great importance of an all-Russian newspaper for the purpose of putting the whole picture of the rottenness of Tsarism before the Russian people. It was also a means of avoiding duplication of effort, something very important as the party is relatively small, as it was produced at a single centre so that the necessary research didn't have to be done over and over again at different centres and expertise could be pulled to great effect. Of course, dissemination of the newspaper is an important element of practical work, practical work that in our party was seriously curtailed by the pandemic, but which is now restarting in earnest. Of course, we do have a presence on the internet and on social media, resources obviously not available to Lenin, but the advantage of the newspaper is that it demands real-life contact with real people with whom discussions can be held, enabling the vendor to learn more about the concerns of ordinary workers while at the same time addressing those concerns and putting them in the context of the class struggle. Uh, notwithstanding the tremendous advantages that have been made since Lenin's day in the field and mode of communication, the importance of a single nationwide party newspaper can't be exaggerated. Uh, such a newspaper performs the role of a propagandist, an agitator, and to a certain extent as an organiser. A party can only cast out of the window a central organ at its peril. So Lenin is saying to us, get out there and sell your newspapers. Talk to the people as you do so. Make contacts among the masses. Encourage people to join your study classes and draw them closer to the party. This highly practical work is appropriate at all times. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need worker support if we are to grow, 
and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.